Welcome to Word of Mouth, where dentists talk about how oral health is related to overall health, which is also known as the oral systemic connection. The information provided on this video is not intended as medical advice and should not be interpreted as such. If you seek medical advice, please consult with a healthcare professional. Also, the information in this video represents the thoughts of the individual speakers, and the views expressed in this interview do not necessarily reflect the views of the IAOMT. Hi, welcome to Word of Mouth podcast, uh, IOMT's podcast. I'm Dr. Beth Rosalini. I'm a dentist out of Dallas, Texas, a Healthy Start provider, and an accredited member of IOMT. I'm honored today to be here with Dr. Bergerson. Dr. Bergerson is a board-certified orthodontist. Uh, he graduated from Northwestern. Uh, the thing I love most about him is his commitment to research through his entire career. He has over 500 patents. He's developed a series of early uh, preventive orthodontic appliances that have been treated or have been used to treat over 4 million cases, I believe, worldwide. He's given over 500 seminars. He has over 80 scientific published papers, uh, and he's just been such a contributor to uh, our dental and orthodontic society. So thank you so much for being here. Um, I'd love to start off kind of if you could give us a little bit of a background, kind of what got you into what you are doing currently and um, what you're so passionate about. Well, every once in a while, a patient would walk in and they would teach me something. And it's not often that a 12-year-old can teach a, an old guy anything, but um, I had a boy walk in one day, and he had crooked lower teeth. He had already finished orthodontic treatment, and his teeth were about three millimeters crowded. And I told him, we would have to straighten those. We'd have to put braces on your lower teeth. It would take me about six months. He said, listen, Doc. He said, don't worry. I can have those straightened for you in three days. And I said, there's no way. He came back two or three days later and his teeth were perfectly straight. They, I couldn't have done a better job with braces. And I said, how did you do that? And he took a black rubber thing out of his pocket. It was in three broken pieces and he assembled it into his mouth. And I thought, this is unreal, that that could straighten his teeth. That got me interested. And from that day on, uh, if a patient told me something that was remarkable, I would sure listen to them because that did influence me a lot. Oh, I, I could understand that. Absolutely. Besides that patient, I'm curious, do you have um, a particular patient or a couple of different patients that really stand out in your history of treating patients that was a really remarkable story? Well, I, I had a young girl one time. She had a severe overjet. She sucked her thumb and um, <clears throat> she wouldn't look at me. She would hide her face in her mother's lap. She looked like she was depressed. I, I thought that she lacked personality and everything else. And I uh, gave her an appliance, and a month later she came back, and she was Miss Personality. She was smiling, she was talking, she was self-confident. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I thought maybe she was just happy that she was getting her teeth straightened, but it really probably was the fact that she suddenly had more oxygen in her system because her breathing was changed. I'm almost convinced that that's what happened. That's Awesome. But it was it was kind of interesting, and I've had that from other patients as well. You know, sometimes they their personality changes when you increase oxygen to their system. If we can prevent the lower jaw from slipping back and impinging on the airway, mm -hmm. which closes up the airway and the muscles relax, they can close that airway up almost completely. Maybe not completely, because very few. Younger children have apnea. Only about one to three percent have apnea, 
but um, it means that they might have a lot of other effects that oxygen creates. And it affects the immune system, it affects the endocrine, the hormone system, and of course the brain. And it affects almost everything they do in school. So, okay, I have a, an interesting question. It's kind of a little bit different than what we've talked about before. So when you give your presentation and we hear about all of these wonderful things that Orthotain and Healthy Start can do and you're curing sleep and you're making healthy children, you're preventing them needing braces and they're getting optimal growth and development. And it's just, it. Uh, I would say it sounds too good to be true if I hadn't already treated hundreds of patients in my own practice. On top of that, there have been patients all over the world that have been successfully treated. Uh, but when I go and connect with other doctors in the States, I find that there's a lot of resistance. And it's kind of one of two things. Either one, a dentist will say, oh, ortho, that's a, I don't want to touch that. I have an orthodontist that I like and I send them cases. That's out of my realm of comfort. Um, or two, they say, well, I was treated with bands and brackets. I was treated with traditional ortho, um, so that's going to be good enough for me, for my kids, and for my patients. So where do you think the disconnect is between, I know we have a lot of U.S.-based providers, but it's not just a, duh, everyone should be using Healthy Start from an early age. Where, why do you think that's um, difficult to translate? It's hard to put my finger on that, but um, there are certain countries where an orthodontist can sit next to a dentist at a seminar and they're not bothered by that. You cannot do that in the United States. And there are some countries like Holland, you cannot mix the orthodontist with the dentist. They, they resent that. And um, I don't know if it's they're trying to protect their own profession. The orthodontic profession is tremendously self-interested in protecting themselves. For example, at Northwestern University, we were told by the dean that we were not allowed to teach the pediatric dentists anything about growth and development or orthodontics. What? And I said, and the dean was a pediatric dentist, and I said, why not? He said, well, the orthodontists have gotten together and they're not going to donate any more money if we teach the pediatrics anything. So I get a call from the head of the pediatric department. He said, I would like you to come over and lecture at Children's Memorial Hospital which is about five miles away from the university. And I said, how come I'm here? And he said, well, you're not allowed to speak at the university, and this is off the property, so you can say anything you want to us and teach us. That's how we taught the pediatric dentist. At Tufts University, the head of the orthodontic department and the head of the pediatric department didn't speak to each other. They'd go to opposite sides of the street when they were passing so they wouldn't have to communicate with each other. And yet they were both using the same appliance. One was using it as a positioner in the orthodontic department, very good friend of mine, and the other was using it as an orthodontic appliance in the department. But it may have been that they had, they were teaching orthodontics to the pediatric students, which is very good. Now, there are some universities where they combine. In Brazil, for example, the head of the orthodontic department serves for, I think, three years, and then the next department head will be the pediatric dentist. And then they'll revert back, back and forth, and they all take the same courses. Now, in Brazil, there is no animosity between the two professions. They are completely in agreement with each other, and they treat in similar ways. They're not afraid of that. And most countries, they're not. But the United States, for some reason, um, they're uptight about that. If somebody comes down from Canada and teaches general dentists, the orthodontists are not worried about that. 
but if it's a United States orthodontist that's teaching general dentists, they get all upset about that. So I, I don't know. It may have, things have changed over recent years maybe because of that. I, I don't know. So I appreciate that background. I wasn't aware to that level of detail. Um, what would you advise a, a general dentist? Uh, I know when I was fresh out of dental school, I had the benefit of my dad being a dentist and him saying, you have to learn this methodology, otherwise you're going to have patients who don't get optimal care and won't get optimal clinical outcomes. So he really encouraged me. But if you don't have that kind of mentorship, I, if I, my dad had not introduced me to you and, and your philosophy of care, there are a lot of dentists who would be intimidated by saying, okay, I've learned it, the research makes sense, the science makes sense, I've seen the clinical results, but actually implementing this new care uh, regimen in their community can kind of ruffle some feathers. So do you have any specific advice you would give to a doctor in that standpoint? Well, it would be best if they would take a course and learn and be told that um, they're, they're trained, they're better trained than an 18-year-old girl to do orthodontics, I would think, and um, if they feel comfortable doing it, but they do have to be told what cases to avoid, what cases to stay away from, which ones are going to give them trouble. If they understand that and do the ones that they feel comfortable that they can get a good success out of, that's going to work for them. And um, I guess that, and maybe if you can coach them a little bit along the line as they're treating a case, if they can call you or ask you, ask somebody, Am I going in the right direction? Is this okay? Is this the right way to go? And uh, if you can answer to them, um, they become more confident. And especially if they treat a patient that's very cooperative and does everything they want them to do, they'll get a tremendous success and they'll never forget that first patient. Um, so we encourage them to find a patient that's very cooperative, that shows up every time for their appointment and just give them the appliance and see what it does. And if it corrects it well, go to the next one and then get more and more involved with it. That's the best way, I guess. I love that, that's really great advice. Finding a mentor, even if you're not born into a family of dentists, is a great, a great way to get started. Um, okay, so you're very smart and you have a lot of credentials that no one on the planet has. And that is amazing and that's why I appreciate just saying, if Dr. Bergerson says this is good, I'm good with it. Uh, but I appreciate, as a scientist and as a researcher, you do a lot of learning through failure. So if you wouldn't mind um, kind of being vulnerable and sharing, do you have any major failure moments that have been some big teaching moments through the course of your career or anything that you can anybody share and make yourself seem a little bit more human? Yeah, anybody that <laughs> says they don't have failures, um, they're lying. Okay. <laughs> and I remember there was an orthodontist near me that he did not want me to come in his town to practice. And I told him one time, I said, you know, I said, I don't have any failures in orthodontics. I'm 100%. He says, you're kidding. He said, how come? I said, I've only been here six months. I haven't seen a failure yet. And uh, he got the joke, but um, we all have failures. And um, we don't like to talk about them, but I do think they should be discussed. And they should be related to the person that's doing something like you're doing to tell them what cases they're going to get more failure about. And uh, there are certain cases that the general dentist would be smart to stay away from and uh, let the orthodontist do. The orthodontist um, should do the ones that are more difficult and more 
difficult to get a good result with. And um, we, none of us want failures. And so you should really have kind of a mentor, like you were very lucky to have your dad, that he could tell you, you know, what's good, what's bad, what works, what doesn't work. And it's nice if you can have somebody like that. I often tell people they should join a study club and relate to others that are using the same technique, perhaps, and um, be able to trade, trade failures and successes with them. Oh, that's great advice. I love that. So uh, looking back in your career, I know as an innovator, you kind of are on the frontier by yourself, so to speak. But do you have someone that you looked up to or a role model or a mentor through your career uh, that kind of helped shape? In orthodontics or elsewhere? Wherever. Yeah, in life, wherever. <laughs> well, I love Thomas Edison. Okay. I love Thomas Jefferson. So, uh, but orthodontists, um, there were a lot of tremendous orthodontic practitioners years ago, and I was very lucky to um, have a chairman that took great interest in the students. He encouraged them to publish, and you did something worthwhile, he would be there to support you 100%. Wonderful person. And uh, I often told him, I, you know, if you were my dad, I would be very proud to have you as my father. Not that my father wasn't. Right. Wonderful, but um, really nice I felt that way about him. The lowest person in the school, the cleaning lady would come in, he would take his hat off for that woman and always greet her. And I thought, what a respectable person. Okay. And um, so he, when he became chairman, he said, I will only become chairman of this department if you promise to have somebody from Loyola University that's very good at anatomy come over here and teach the students. Hmm. And that was Harry Sisher. Harry Sisher was probably the greatest anatomist that I had ever met. And um, he would come to our department and spend one day a week with us. Um, he had a two-hour lecture, but he would always come about an hour early, and I made sure that I was sitting there where he came an hour early, and he and I would talk for an hour on anything, but mostly anatomy and uh, orthodox. He wasn't an orthodontist. He was an anatomist and a wonderful man. His name was Harry Sisher. And um, as a matter of fact, he was living in... Austria, I think it was Austria, and uh, he was out collecting butterflies one day, and when he started home, he saw the SS troops in front of his house looking for him. They wanted to take him away, and he turned his back, walked away, and he never returned, and I felt, I never asked him if he had a wife or children, but um, such a sad story, and he came to the United States, and he was a wonderful professor. I just admired him, so he probably influenced me. And the other one that influenced me was B. Holly Broadbent, who invented the cephalostat technique. And he took records on 5,000 children in Cleveland, Ohio. And the amount of effort that he spent taking records on those children and to allow anybody to come in and use those records and do research, I thought, what a wonderful person he was. I would work all night long there. And um, on a Saturday night, he would show up about one in the morning. He was in a tuxedo, and he would sit down for three hours and look at cephalometric films. Very devoted person. I thought, what a lot of devotion he had in order to do that. And almost everything we know about growth came from those records that that man had. So it was, he was an interesting person. I really like that. I want to circle back. I'm curious. You mentioned Thomas Edison and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, what is it about their spirit or their lives that inspired you, or what stands out about them to you? Thomas Jefferson has such a, um, 
appreciation of this country and um, what the country was all about and what it could be. And the fact that he um, purchased the Louisiana Purchase for about a penny or two an acre. I mean, unbelievable foresight for such a man. And, um, you know, he was, he was just a wonderful um, statesman. If we could only have every statesman be like that, it would be wonderful. There are other very good people. Thomas Edison, um, I visited his um, area in Florida one time, and I was so amazed at all the things he did and all the effort and uh, energy that he put forward to develop a light bulb. I mean, how, how simple it is. You think a light bulb would be easy to develop, but boy, all the effort that he took. I recently took a, um, a tour to Europe, and I... Um, um, it was in the footsteps of, um, trying to think of her name now, the famous one that wrote a lot of books on cooking. Um, Julia Childs. Julia Childs. <clears throat> and um, she went to France and she wanted to become a, a cook. Right. They didn't want her to become a cook. They wanted her to be upstairs with all the women and she wanted to be downstairs with all the men that were studying to be cooks. Mm -hmm. So she finally got down there and she wanted to develop a bread that would be like French bread and she went through 150 pounds of flour and finally found the combination of flour that m mimicked what they did in France and she was able to produce bread and I thought, what a lot of determination for a person to go through all that effort Absolutely. and end up with the right thing she was looking for. But it was a very interesting tour. I love tours like that that allow you to appreciate somebody. Oh, for sure. I'm a terrible cook myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I want to switch gears. And uh, whether doctors or patients or whoever might be listening to us, I think right now we're kind of, uh, the internet is a double-edged sword when it comes to information. We're blessed that we can have answers to questions at our fingertips, but then at the same time, we're burdened by the fact that we have information overload. And I know I have patients in my practice that almost have paralysis by analysis because they just can't, well, I trust this organization to tell me the truth. I tell this organization to tell me the truth. So for people who are not trained in the scientific method and are not lifelong researchers, are there some key things that you would advise people to look for as far as the way a research paper is designed, how it's published, who um, maybe pays for it, how, how people can decide, okay, this seems like a real conclusion because it's based on true science and facts, and this is a blog based on anecdotal experience of one person. Can you comment on that? Well, to me, if I happen to know who the researcher is, there are certain people that I trust as researchers. I know they're honest. I know everything they do is really above board. On the other hand, if something <clears throat> is being pushed into a university or somebody else and there's money being passed between the two, um, I'm not so encouraged by research like that. And uh, a lot of people will spend their whole time at a university looking for research money. And um, I remember one time I spoke to a uh, high person in one of the large um, companies that d does a lot of development and dentistry. And uh, he was afraid that if you brought something out that somebody might be totally against it and would 
kind of ruin things. And they had a product one time that was ruined that way. And he said, to tell you the truth, um, we can throw $50,000 in the way of a person that's going to be a troublemaker. And he said, that'll keep him quiet because then he knows that we're willing to give him money to do research and he would be doing something and stay out of the way and not say anything that would hurt us. Well, that type of influence is not so encouraging when you take a look down the line. Also, the way a project is done, how many people they have in the study, if they've captured all the corners of problems that they might have and explained them out, and they've done the proper statistics and everything looks pretty good, you can pretty well determine that it's fairly decent research. But if they've published things and have um, cut corners and say things that are really not proven statistically, I'm not so sure that's so good. So, um, you know, but I think a lot depends on knowing the person that's done it. It's hard to do because you don't always know who that person is. Also, if they publish in a reputable journal, if the publish has to be, article has to be published in some out-of-the-way journal that nobody reads, you, you understand that maybe people aren't too impressed with that. And, um, but um, anyway, it, it's a little hard. But uh, I think doing research yourself opens your mind up a lot into what, what you're looking for. And uh, especially if somebody teaches and they're advising other people to do research, uh, they, they can tell a good student from a bad student. I found that the students that were particularly good at writing were not so good at research, and the ones that were good at research were not very good writers. So it, it never came out right. <laughs> uh, to talk a little bit more about research, uh, what do you think is the best part or your favorite part about doing research, and what's the hardest or worst part about doing research? Well, I love to do research. It's a little bit like a uh, science novel. It's a little bit like a murder mystery, and you try and find out the answer to a problem. You, you think that there's something not going right. This doesn't sound right to me, and uh, why don't I try and prove and see if that's right or not? And that is very exciting, and you finally get the answer, and you think, oh, boy, that's wonderful. Then you start to write it down. That, that part disinterests me entirely because I'm really... Uh, I'm done with the research. I've done finding out what I wanted to find out, and that's kind of the end of it. And so a lot of the things that I've found out, um, I haven't published because I, I, it's a bore to publish something and write it down and write all the um, references and everything else. It's, it's kind of a, a bore, but if you can, it's exciting to do the research. I can hardly wait to get up in the morning to do something. I love that. So of all of you, <laughs> so you're a man of, uh, that wears many hats. You educate, you research, you've treated patients, uh, you mentor, uh, and there are probably a million other things that you do that I don't, I'm not even mentioning. What's your favorite thing that you do professionally? Professionally? I think it's research. And I haven't practiced for many years. I've been retired for many years. But um, I love to try something on a child and see how well it works sometimes. Uh, sometimes I'd have to try it on my own children first, and that wasn't so easy on my kids. But um, um, if it worked, then you could hardly wait for patients to come in the next month or so to see what changes are occurring, if it really is doing what you have anticipated. I like that. Get to do. 
So I want to get back to Healthy Start and what we're doing with growth and development. And doctors who maybe are not uh, current providers or haven't been doing ortho, and they're especially our IOMT doctors, they see a lot of adults who already have mercury amalgam fillings or have root canals, and they're helping restore oral and systemic health. Uh, and when I connect them, they say, well, I don't see any kids in my practice, so this isn't really applicable. Um, how do you see that kind of bridging together as far as, well, yes, you can treat adults and or help restore health, but if you prevent it in a child, this is how you can really grow your practice or how introducing children in your practice can really go well together in treating a whole family. Can you, you talk about that? You just answered it. I did? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you're but taking, you you're taking my place for yeah. me. <laughs> That no. can be kind of hard sometimes well, when you're so focused on adults. Treat, treatment orthodontically is much easier in a young growing child than it is in an older person. You get much more success out of it. Um, you have larger deciduous teeth in there, uh, in the back particularly, because you have extra room to make sure you can get crowding corrected. And so growth itself is a tremendous factor. Um, to take an adult and try and change sleep patterns or behavior patterns they're so well-seated that you're not going to be very successful, I don't think. But you take a young child that's ready to go to school and you can change their pattern of behavior where they can make better friends. Um, what a thrill that is. Um, I've rarely ever had anybody call me crying that I made their daughter so much more beautiful. or. Maybe as a dentist, you would never have a mother call you and cry over the telephone, oh, that MOD was so beautiful you put in, the anatomy was so great. You know, they don't even look at that. They don't realize that. But preventing sleep issues in a child, you get unbelievable comments from parents. You sometimes have saved marriages. Um, you've allowed the parent to sleep all night long. I mean, it's unbelievable the reaction you get, and um, that makes it all worthwhile sometimes. And um, I just find such a thrill that we can change a child's success in school, for example. Fifty percent of the children that have sleep issues are held back one year in grammar school. Thirty percent are held back two years. And when you think they're thinking the child is going to mature and grow out of it, they don't grow out of these things. And it just gets worse. And it gets worse and worse. And finally, when they're in high school, it gets really a big problem. When they start driving a car, they might be stopped by a policeman. They might get out of the car and take a swing at the policeman. And they go to jail. And I would be willing to bet that if we went into a prison and we took sleep issues with these people and gave them a questionnaire, we would be amazed at how many of those inmates are probably sleep pattern problems at a young age. That is fascinating. Are you, we should do the study. I'll well, do the citations. I would You're love just... <laughs> to. I have a dentist in St. Louis who is a user and is very connected with sleep issues in her practice. And her husband's a police officer. Mm -hmm. And he's in charge of going to school and taking out children that are problem children. So on television one day, uh, about a year or so ago, uh, I was watching television and they had a young boy. 
he was about seven years of age. He was in maybe second grade or something like that. And he was uncontrollable by the teacher. So she called the police. They came, they put him in handcuffs. They didn't fit around his wrists, so they handcuffed his elbows behind his back. And this poor little boy was screaming. And I thought, what a shame. That little boy probably has sleep issues. He can't control himself. They blame the parents because they haven't disciplined their child well enough. So we wrote to everybody in that school, the teachers and the administrators, and we wrote to the parent-teachers group inviting them to come to a seminar that I was giving a week later in Cincinnati. Oh, wow. One person showed up, and I thought, what a shame. Right. What a shame. They should understand what that little boy was going through. That's going to affect that little boy the rest of his life. Why do you think people didn't show up? I don't just know. Overscheduled, over busy. I have no idea. They just thought, oh, this has nothing to do with it. That's so... I would have thought the mother would have come. I don't know who came, but um, nothing ever happened, I don't think. If I went to that same school, they probably are doing the same thing now. Now, that police officer that is married to this dentist in St. Louis, mm -hmm. he said he, he has learned how to recognize a child with sleep issues. Hmm. He can see the dark circles under the eyes. He can see their sleepiness during the day. He said almost every child he takes out of school for improper behavior is a sleep issue child. And I said, how wonderful it would be if we could do a study on that. But um, I don't think he would be allowed to do that being in the police force. But um, it would be an interesting study. And to go into a prison and some of these people, that they're all loners. Most of these children that do terrible things in schools are loners. And I would be willing to bet that a lot of them have suffered all through their childhood, not having friends, being shunned, teased, all that. Um, and they finally snap at some point and do these terrible things. I don't understand it really, but um, maybe if we got a hold of some of these children at a younger age and checked their sleep issues, it might help. What, okay, one thing that I found um, to be challenging, there's kind of almost an ignorance is bliss. You don't know what you don't know when you graduate from dental school and you just think, okay, I know these things, this is what I'm focused on. And then if you're truly investing in your patient, you're going to be a a perpetual student, always learning, broadening your mind. Once you're exposed to some of the content that you lecture on, it's, I think you can't go back. It's a tipping point of now that you're aware, you become compelled to help the children. And uh, it's sometimes really challenging when I see kids too late or adults that are too late who have had braces and they may have straight teeth, but they have sleep apnea, they have TMD, they have chronic inflammatory symptoms in their whole body. Um, another thing that I was so shocked by, my sister, Jill, um, who's also a dentist and uses Healthy Start, she has seen a lot of children with Down syndrome. And the standard of care for children with Down syndrome that have airway issues is they get uh, they go under general anesthesia, they get their tonsils and adenoids removed, they get ear tubes, they get an RPE, rapid palatal expander, cemented in, and the kid wakes up after multiple different surgeries over a period of time. They have to stay in the ICU with the metal device in their mouth, and it's just, that's before they ever even try a removable intraoral appliance. And we have a lot of kids that we're now educating and we're intercepting that care and we're getting great results. I, it, it is 
hard as a practitioner and just being in my community, what do you think it will take for everyone to wake up and say, hey, our current standard is not good enough? Like, how do we raise the level of what everyone is doing to really help these kids in a way that we, you know how, I know how, but not everyone knows how or accepts. It's like everyone is just has tunnel vision on the one thing that they're supposed to focus on instead of kind of a collaboration of what's the best thing that we know from each group. Well, we have to, we have to educate them. <clears throat> and um, almost the average physician, I shouldn't criticize them because they simply don't know um, what can be done sometimes. And when you tell them, they're amazed. I went to a sleep clinic one day and I was trying to get him interested in doing something for children. They didn't have a children area. They just did adults. And so I showed him a case where the mandible was advanced and the airway was opened up. He said, oh my gosh. He said, I had no idea you could do such a thing. And I wondered, how come? Why doesn't he know that? And their first line of treatment, as you say, take out the tonsil adenoids, put a rapid palatal expander in there, or do a tracheotomy or whatever else they're doing for these poor kids and see if that works. Well, a lot of things are not done by those things. Rapid palatal expander will not create the elimination of mouth breathing. Maybe some cases it will, but a lot of cases it won't. And um, tonsils and adenoids used to be thought of as, oh, that's a wonderful thing to do for a child. Well, the results are not that great anymore. They're um, very minimal effects because maybe the tonsils and adenoids are that way because of the airway problems. And you're eliminating one of the symptoms. <laughs> you're not eliminating the cause, really. And so uh, I think when a physician is educated, they can become very interested. We do have to educate. That takes time. So. Uh, I'm, I know we have to wrap here soon, but I'm curious, kind of, you've been so wonderful in mentoring additional doctors, mentoring a generation of new educators. What is it about your legacy that you want to make sure is always shared with anyone new to orthotain and Healthy Start and the patients that get treated? Well, I just wish I had more years to go, you know. I'm getting kind of at the tail end of things, and um, I would love to be able to get everybody to appreciate what what any appliance can do for a child. Anything that you can do to correct habits or uh, issues of growth and development that are affecting the sleep issues, if we could just educate everybody to that. And um, uh, it's just a long process and um, takes a lot of education and uh, I don't know how that comes about. You can publish an article, nobody reads it maybe. And, um, who knows, I don't know. Well, I will say you have very high standards. So I'd say starting with the 4 million cases that have been treated over 49 years is pretty darn awesome. You've had r really great. Uh, well, I suppose. <laughs> you've changed but, a lot of lives. I suppose, but uh, it'd be nice if 50 million were treated, you know. And it would be nice if what we do is 100% every time it is not. Um, sleep issues are very complicated and there are multiple causes, which bothers me. A lot of research is being done in medicine. I mean, the articles that are coming out these days are measuring all sorts of 
chemical reactions between different hormones and different things that may be um, answers down the line. But everybody realizes that you can't get 100% 100% of the time. We can get 100% for headaches, for example, and over 80% of the kids. I mean, that's unbelievable. And when I did that one statistic, I thought, oh, I hope they're all that way. But they weren't. They weren't. Bedwetting is maybe uh, almost 50%, 40-some percent. But that's, that's not high enough. I would love to see 100%, and I'm not sure how we're going to get that. But uh, at some point, maybe we will. Anyway, it's, um, it's a long process. But the parent is so exasperated with the child. You know, they've tried everything. And um, even a child with a Down syndrome child, they're desperate. Even if you get 10% improvement, it's a wonderful thing. We had one woman that had a child with um, autism, and he wouldn't study. And he, he was 20 years old, 21 or something like that, and he was having a terrible time. And he did wear an appliance, and it did help him. And maybe it helped him 10%, maybe 20%, I don't know. She was excited. She was thrilled. She was overwhelmed that he had some success and he could do his homework on his own suddenly. But uh, those patients are in such need. We see that it, it can help a lot of children that have very serious problems. And we're never going to correct a Down syndrome child uh, with anything like this, but it might help them a little bit and might get them over the hump that they need to feel successful. Oh, for sure. I mean, from my own anecdotal experience and what I've seen Jill do in our practice, we've had children who have been on the spectrum and they go from non-communicative, very kind of introverted, uh, not very interactive, and then within a matter of a couple of months of wearing the appliance at night, they are, it's night and day a different kid as far as how outgoing, how engaged, how appropriately energized they are. Um, and that's that's a huge victory. It's a huge quality of life impact on the entire family. I think because you're exactly right. because of oxygen. Right. For sure. All I mean. because of the oxygen in the body. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, without oxygen, a lot of terrible things happen. Absolutely. Okay, Dr. Bergerson, I'm curious. Uh, what are your dreams and your aspirations for this therapy over the next 10 years, even over the next 20 years? I think it would be wonderful if every dentist would look at every child in their office and decide if they have a sleep issue worth correcting or not. And uh, if we could help all those children, if there are, say if there are 80% of children that could use some help, how wonderful it would be if the dentist could look at all the children that he sees from, or he, she sees, from say one year of age on, every six months or two years of age on, to be able to diagnose and do something to help those children and how wonderful that would be and get them prepared for school so the children are reading and mathematics and everything else is more successful for them. Kids deserve it. I mean, it would be wonderful if parents would appreciate it and the dentist would appreciate it. I don't know if it's possible in 10 years, but um, it would be wonderful if it could occur.
Well, Maybe. Who knows? Dr. Bergerson, this has been such a lovely opportunity to get to sit here and chat with you. Uh, such wonderful information. And I know it's just the tiny tip of the iceberg that we could sit here for six hours and talk even more. Uh, and I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for tuning in to this episode of Word of Mouth. If you'd like more information, you can visit our website at wordofmouth.iomt.org. Otherwise, that's it for today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Beth. Always a pleasure. This podcast has been brought to you by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, the IAOMT. The IAOMT strives for safer dentistry and a healthier world. We are a network of over 1,000 dentists, health professionals, and scientists who research dental products and practices, including the risks of mercury fillings, fluoride, root canals, and jawbone osteonecrosis. We are a nonprofit organization and have been dedicated to our mission of protecting public health and the environment since we were founded in 1984. You can learn more about us at www.iaomt.org and www.thesmartchoice.com. The information provided on this video is not intended as medical advice and should not be interpreted as such. If you seek medical advice, please consult with a healthcare professional. Also, the information in this video represents the thoughts of the individual speakers, and the views expressed in this interview do not necessarily reflect the views of the IAOMT, 